This week on The Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast, we're talking about the 1864 presidential election and Abraham Lincoln's re-election. Now, now, now. Not five, not four, not two, just three. The Rail Splitter, axe in hand, looking out at a frontier of hope and possibility. In excellent to each other. Party on, dudes! Welcome to the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me today are Rail Splitter Nick. What's going on, people? Listening to us on electronic devices. And Rail Splitter Mary. Hey, Rail Splitters. So we've been kind of talking about having an episode on the 1864 election for quite some time. It's definitely been a topic that uh, always kind of pops out as something that we need to cover. Um, but uh, being a podcast about one person, uh, we try to vary it up as much as we can. We did an episode on the 1860 election way back in the beginning. I think that was episode two or three. Um, obviously, we've come a long way since then. Uh, but we are going to do the episode on the 1864 election today. This may develop into a two-parter. We'll kind of see how the discussion goes. Uh, but it is a major event in Abraham Lincoln's life, clearly, and in the Civil War. So uh, we definitely want to dedicate some time to the political side of history of Lincoln and the Civil War this week. So I'm going to set the stage a little bit for our discussion on the 1864 election by just kind of talking a little bit about the differences between politics in the mid-19th century versus politics now, specifically as it relates to presidential re-election campaigns. Now, um, it is pretty much guaranteed that the sitting president, one, will run again for a second term, and two, will have no problem securing his or her party's nomination. Um, the current president's approval ratings are historically low. They're at historic lows um, among all voters. They're high among Republicans, but they're they're very low among all um, voters. He may have a challenge, which would be unique for the nomination. He probably will have a challenge um, from some lesser-known politicians. He may have a challenge from a very well-known politician. A lot of folks seem to think John Kasich might um, run the governor of Ohio. But I think the general consensus among political folks is that um, even if the current president were to have some resistance or a challenge for the primary or for the nomination, uh, that he would win and win fairly easily. Um, going back through history, um, every president in the 20th, 20th century, for the most part, has um, been able to do that recently. There was a small challenge to um, Jimmy Carter, 1980, when Ted Kennedy ran for the nomination and got some momentum early, uh, but faded uh, just because of the incumbency of the presidency was difficult to overcome. 1976, Ronald Reagan tried to uh, get the nomination from Gerald Ford, who was pretty vulnerable since he had never been elected vice president or president and was a sitting president, but Ford uh, overcame that challenge for the uh, re-election. Um, going back through history, even to the early 20th century, when you have 
um, Teddy Roosevelt decided to get back into politics um, and try to uh, wrestle away a nomination. That was the last time you really had a sitting president um, face a serious fight in Taft. But currently we don't think of the nomination as an issue for 20th century, 20th century presidents or 21st century presidents now. But if you go to the 19th century, it was completely different. So um, from the beginning of the presidency, clearly we have George Washington, who had no problem being elected to two terms. Uh, the second president, John Adams, was a one-term president who did have the support of the newly emerging political party system. Um, and that was a, definitely the emergence of the two-party system with he and Thomas Jefferson. He loses to Jefferson, who serves two terms, followed by um, Madison, who served two terms, followed by Monroe, who served two terms. Um, then you had John Quincy Adams, uh, who served one, and then you had Andrew Jackson serve two. So you had a series of, for the most part, of the incumbency being worth something and political favor being with sitting presidents, and you saw quite a few two-termers early on in the country's history, but from Andrew Jackson all the way up until the election we're talking about today, no president was elected to a second term. Most folks are aware of that. What people may not be aware of is that none of those presidents even secured their party's nomination for re-election, which I find quite fascinating that um, president after president not only served one term but fell out of favor with his party. Um, so, and I think this is kind of evident, and we've talked about this from time to time on the show, of the Office of the Presidency itself still kind of struggling to find its place. Andrew Jackson was a very powerful leader. Uh, many of the other two-termers were as well, um, but that was kind of the era of sectionalism and really dominant, um, a dominant role from Congress. So going through that, um, those elections, uh, Andrew Jackson was last elected in 1832. Fast forward to um, 1836, and his um, successor was Martin Van Buren, largely thought to be kind of handed the presidency um, in, in many ways from Andrew Jackson. Um, he uh, ran a campaign in 1836 against William Henry Harrison, defeated William Henry Harrison, and then in 1840, um, he actually was the, I, I misspoke, he, the eighth president was the last one to win the nomination. He was then defeated by William Henry Harrison. Um, in 1844, William Henry Harrison clearly didn't run because he was not alive. Um, but the um, president who took over for him, um, John Tyler, uh, did not win the nomination, did not seek, um, was not able to be the party's nominee for the second term. Uh, so James K. Polk won that election over one of Lincoln's heroes, Henry Clay. Um, the next election cycle, um, we see Zachary Taylor, a war hero from the Mexican-American War, um, overcome Lewis Cass. So again, a sitting president uh, does not uh, secure the nomination, although Martin Van Buren, a foreign president, did try to make a run as well. Uh, 1852, we have Franklin Pierce run against Winfield Scott. So once again, the sitting president uh, does not secure the nomination for his party. In 1856, as we know, uh, James Buchanan 
runs against uh, John C. Fremont. Uh, Millard Fillmore makes a run in there as well, uh, but as kind of um, that was when he ran as the know nothings. Um, so a bit of an afterthought there. Your friend Millard Fillmore. Ah, uh, he only got only got one state, eight electoral votes. What a joke. <laughs> Uh, and that state would be Maryland. Maryland, my Maryland. Yep. Um, one other, you know, I, I think popular vote matters too. I think as we look at the 1864 election in particular, all of these elections, looking at the Electoral College versus the popular vote, I think is key um, because um, he didn't do well, Fillmore, but he did get 873,000 votes, which was uh, 21% of the vote. Um, but Buchanan got 45% and carried all of the South and uh, Midwest, um, Southern part of the Midwest. Um, but anyway, so you see um, what I guess the point I'm trying to make is not only was Lincoln's reelection not guaranteed, but his nomination was nowhere near guaranteed. So for someone to challenge Abraham Lincoln, even in the middle of a civil war, for, simply for the nomination would not have been shocking. Now, if there was a, a um, organized, powerful, well-funded, um, popular challenge to a sitting president's nomination, uh, that would be a big deal. Uh, that really hasn't happened. It happened a little bit in 1980, a little bit in 1976, um, but they were definitely um, long shots, and it turned out that they didn't end up being successful in usurping the, the nomination from a sitting president. Um, I don't believe it's anything we'll see in modern. I mean, if, if the current president is showing us anything, it's that um, he can do almost anything without losing favor with his uh, base of supporters, um, regardless of what his, uh, his um, uh, approval rating is across the board. Uh, so it would be quite shocking for a sitting president not to get the nomination. Um some elections that, that jump out, uh, 1968, when Lyndon Johnson declined the nomination, that election may have, it may very well have uh, been one that did not go to the sitting president, 1968 being a very unique year politically, socially, globally. Um, that, that was a year where there was significant challenge to his nomination. So I think that's a bit of an outlier um, you can maybe look to. Um, but looking back at the history of the 20th century, obviously, uh, 1968 stands out for many reasons. So just trying to set the stage a little bit for the 1864 election and to make the point that by no means was Abraham Lincoln's nomination guaranteed, much less his reelection. And I think that often gets overlooked, the significance of him coming into Washington um, shortly before the Civil War became, a, a, became hot, became a war. Um, and navigating through the staggering casualty rates um, to win that second term, win the nomination and win the second term, is, is quite fascinating. So hopefully today we will tell the story of that election in a way that informs you and kind of lets you know just what a big deal it was, um, not only for the sake of the nation and the sake of the union, but for the sake of Lincoln's legacy. So uh, Rail Splitter Mary has done quite a lot of research on this lately. Um, so she's going to kind of take, take it away here and we'll kind of, um, fill in as needed, Nick and I. Uh, so Mary, tell us about this crazy reelection campaign in the middle of a civil war with Abraham Lincoln 
and our friend okay, well, George McClellan. Okay, well, thank you for setting the stage for it, Jeremy. That was an excellent job. And just as Jeremy said, like, you know, Lincoln's going into this 1864 election with a lot of factors against him. And in his biography, a Lincoln that Ronald White wrote, um, he said that yet for all Lincoln with the people, politicians continue to question his desirability. And that's for many different reasons, you know, just in some ways the way the Civil War was going, but also for the reasons that Jeremy outlined as well. The fact that no one had been inaugurated for a second term since President Andrew Jackson in 1832. So um, as White says that the scales began to be weighed at the beginning of the year and they weren't really in favor of Lincoln, it seemed. But he still does have, Lincoln does have support. Um, Albert Smith, a former Democrat member of Congress, said, you have touched and taken the popular heart and secured your re-election. And the Chicago Tribune, writing at the end of 1863, stated that Mr. Lincoln has the inside track. He has the confidence of the people and even the respect and affection of the masses. So there's this, he's got this popularity, but history of, you know, elections and the presidency is, is going against him. So there's a few different potential candidates that could be on the Republican ticket. Um, three of them are Lincoln's cabinet members. William Seward, or as he's affectionately known on the show. Seward. <laughs> um, Edward Bates and Salmon P. Chase, which we'll get to more on Chase soon. There's also John C. Fremont, who Lincoln has clashed with him earlier earlier. Um, over some things in the Civil War, which we'll also um, touch upon tonight, too. And then um, General Grant, of all people, which um, is surprising, but it's not. Um, at the end of 1863, beginning of 1864, General Grant's become quite popular because of his victories in the Western Theater of the War. Um, after Rosecrans's very dismal performance at the Battle of Chickamauga, Grant ends up coming in and replacing him. Uh, the anniversary of Chickamauga is actually today, the 19th of September. Um, and on March 8th, 1864, Grant will actually meet Lincoln at the White House and there's going to be a reception for him. And he's been asked to become Lieutenant General of the Armies, a rank not held since George Washington. He moves west to east where he will oversee the armies. Um, and as we will see, however, things do take a turn for the worse for Grant um, with things like the wilderness and Cold Harbor. And in turn, that does some people. Some people believe that that is going to hurt Lincoln getting reelected because the war is not going very well. Um, so, do you guys have anything to add in to that so far? You know what I think about eighteen sixty-three. The fact that we're talking about how he struggles to get the nomination. I mean, the second half of eighteen sixty-three, from a military standpoint, is pretty good. Mm -hmm. For the Union, I mean, you got Vicksburg, which basically divides the South in half. Gettysburg happens. You know, you talked about Grant's victory down in the South there. Um, I mean, for all purposes, the war, it's the beginning of the end. I mean, the South isn't going to come back from that. Um, and then, you know, there's been headway with the Emancipation Proclamation proclaimed. You know, this uh, the slavery issue, the ball. Uh, uh, getting rid of that is definitely making steam. So it's kind of weird when you think about how well 63 is kind of ending. 
I mean, yeah, you have some frustration that uh, me does not follow up on Lee. But, you know, it pretty much kind of, as far as the South, their viewpoint's got to be, we can only gain a political victory now, not a military victory. And the fact that Lincoln's struggling or, you know, kind of struggled to get the nomination kind of was playing in the South's hands, in my viewpoint, when looking at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I agree. I also think that, that this is where he did face the most significant challenge to his reelection. Um, I, I don't think that the challenge that McClellan ends up posing is nearly as significant as the challenges that could have been posed by Seward and Chase and Bates also, um, to a lesser extent Bates, um, because of the situation with the, the war, you know, with the war and everything else. Um, I think that it's important also to note about those individuals specific, particularly Seward and Chase, that their, their, um, desire for the presidency was extreme and their motivation and drive for the office was extreme. Uh, I, I do think, and I know we've talked quite a lot about it over the last few weeks of Doris Kearns Goodwin's work, but in team arrivals, I think she does an excellent job of really, um, because they're almost mini biographies in many ways of Chase Seward and Bates. Um, but the going into just how badly Seward and Chase particularly wanted to be president um, is is very important to understand in the nomination fight uh, because they they really did have to to take one for the team I suppose you could say um, when they decided um, not to vigorously pursue it um, not to say that they didn't pursue it at all uh, but to to, to do what was in the best interest of the country and not make it a really bitterly fought convention floor delegate delegates, you know, making deals kind of situation that happens so often, certainly in the 19th century and even now. Um, so I think that that's important to note that, 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 that this wasn't as, this wasn't entirely Lincoln overcoming his political rivals as much as his political rivals, um, kind of nodding to Lincoln in a way and, and bowing, I guess, a little bit to Lincoln in a way and really putting some personal aspirations aside, um, which is commendable because they may, you know, had it been a really nasty convention type fight, um, it, it, who knows the, how it could have ended up. And I think Seward takes a step back and by 18 late 1863 1864 I don't think he's thinking of pursuing it as ambitiously as what Chase does and um like Chase as we all know he's Lincoln's secretary of treasury and um in Ronald C. White's bio A. Lincoln he said that he had long desired the highest office of all and Chase wrote to his son-in-law, William Sprague, who was um, a Rhode Island senator, said, I should prefer the election of Mr. Lincoln to that of any other man, but I doubt the expediency of reelecting anybody. And I think a man of different qualities from those the president has will be needed for the next four years. I am not anxious to be regarded as that man, and I am quite willing to leave that question to the decision of those who agree in thinking that some such men should be chosen. So, there's been one argument made in one book I looked at called Reelecting Lincoln um, 
that it's obvious in this letter that Chase is probably seeking the nomination and would love to have the nomination. And Chase, as we know, um, had issues in Lincoln's cabinet, specifically in 1862, which we discussed in our mic drop episode, where Lincoln basically tells him and Seward to cut the, the BS and the dramatics and get back to work. And Chase, um, he's going into this thinking that his secretary, work as Secretary of Treasury was underrated. He tried to resign a few times, which Lincoln had said no every single time. And he also felt that Lincoln was too cautious as president. And writing to an Ohio newspaper in October of 1863, he said that the president could be induced to take the positive responsibility of prompt action as readily as he takes the passive responsibility of delay and letting bad enough alone. And in 1863, during October elections, Chase is campaigning for Lincoln in Ohio and Indiana. Um, Interestingly, I found that Bates wrote in his diary regarding this campaigning that visit to the West is generally understood as Mr. Chase's opening campaign for the presidency. So other members of the cabinet were seeing him seeking it out as well. And Chase did not think highly of Lincoln. Uh, Nicolay and Hay stated that Chase's opinion of Lincoln was between the limits of active hostility and benevolent contempt. And I read one argument, um, I don't know how strong it is, that Chase wanted to win the nomination of 1864 because he believed 1862 had been a mistake. I don't know if by this point Lincoln or Chase is really that against Lincoln, but maybe he was. Um, and Chase was respected by a lot of different people. Um, and so just how did Lincoln deal with Chase? Lincoln admired him for his ambitious stating, Chase is one and a half times bigger than any man I ever knew. And many tried to warn Lincoln about Chase, but Lincoln disregarded it, stating, you are too suspicious. I give you credit for your scarcity, but you are disposed to magnify trifles. Chase is a patriot and one of my best friends. And it was like Mary warned him about him and so did a few other people. And so I think Chase did some other things. Did you guys want to weigh in on this at all about him? Well, I think that... Uh, I think Chase... Inga. Yeah, Chase, I think, is is um, a very important figure in this, in both 1860 and 64, um, because, because of his ambition for the White House, but also he is one of the few politicians, I think, that um, was both ambitious and quite good. Um, I don't think Lincoln quite had the political ambition um, because of his humility. I think that, I think there was always a part of him that felt like really me, you know, coming from Illinois, I think there is a little bit of that um, humility that we've talked about several times on the show. Whereas Chase, I think, felt that that this was definitely something that he could um, that was he was worthy of. Um, not that Lincoln didn't think that, but I do think that there was a little bit more humility. But Chase, I think it's very much understated. His role in the war as Secretary of Treasury was huge. Because of the amount of money, this is like not even close to precedent of the amount of money that the federal government was spending and borrowing and creating and, um, you know, going into massive amounts of debt. And um, his operation of the Treasury, who, and he was not an economist or anything, you know, he was very much a, just a politician, but uh, most historians agree was, was masterful. Uh, he was probably... 
um, the most effective cabinet member, with the exception of possibly Seward, um, at his job. Uh, Stanton obviously did a nice job as well, but that was, you know, he wasn't an original cabinet member, and um, he clearly had a much more robust support system with the entire, you know, the, the military is at its at its biggest up to that point in history. Uh, but I think uh, Chase um, was also, Chase's relationship with Lincoln, I think, is a beautiful example of Lincoln's political genius. I think he played Chase like a fiddle um, many times over. Um, I think he did in 1860, and I think he did in 1864. I think that when he said those wonderful things about Chase, he knew exactly what that would do for Chase, which would... You know, I think he knew that Chase needed to hear those kinds of things and that that would um, appease him in many ways. Uh, and um, I don't think that Chase, for a second, would have given up his fight for the presidency if he ever thought he could win it. Um, I think what really detracted him from seeking the presidency was that some key supporters were beginning to indicate that they were still supporting Lincoln. Uh, and... He originally had stated that the reason he didn't want to support Lincoln was because of electability. Uh, when it came clear that, that Lincoln was electable, he kind of lost lost quite a lot of the edge of his argument. And then he noticed that a lot of folks he really absolutely needed to support him in Ohio were going to support Lincoln. So he pulled out of the race. He was the only one that really campaigned actively. But I think there, were, there was a... Um, still a little bit of caution to it. Like he wasn't openly outwardly aggressively campaigning because of the delicate situation the country was in and his relationship with Lincoln. Um, and I think the, the ultimate um, prize for Chase's not making a big deal of it was his, his eventual appointment to the Supreme court as, as chief Ju justice, um, which I think was the last master stroke of Lincoln's um political genius i think of 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 having rivals who also worked with him and worked for him in many ways and, and i think that that was ended up being um a very good example of him um working through chase's ambition um sometimes chase you know perhaps could have been arguably disloyal in that regard but lincoln knew it and i think lincoln played it beautifully thank you saving about him playing like a fiddle. I think Chase is a punk ass. Um, <laughs> he reminds me of a star athlete who feels that he is better than the team. Um, and he's kind of like the second athlete on the team who thought he was truly the star. He wasn't. Um, and he thought he had the leverage and stuff, and he never did have the leverage. And just like some star athletes who become a pain in the ass, they get their ass cut. And Lincoln cut his ass. And then, yeah, he was good enough, so they put him in the Hall of Fame, which is the Supreme Court in this situation. <laughs> so, Fillmore's uh, a clown and a joke, and Chase is a punk ass. So, that's uh, all right. how I see it. Those of you in history classes right now, feel free to use that one in class uh, this week. Um, yeah, I, I think <laughs> that, that's that a good example. Great. But he, and he's oh, one of those guys, like, he's too good to cut. You know, like, we know we got to deal with him, but he's just too, you know, what are you going to do with him? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, and I think I think that's exactly how Lincoln played it too. Where, you know, he's too good to get rid of, um, but we and we definitely don't want him playing on the other team. So what can we do to keep him on our team, keep him relatively happy, and then um, hopefully all win by it. And I think that's what Lincoln ended up doing, just saying like, I don't want to play against him. 
Um, I don't really want him playing for us 100%. Um, so the, the Supreme Court um, was was kind of the, the tool he used there, there right toward the end. Yeah, I I agree with what Nick is <laughs> Nick is saying. Like when I was doing this research, I was like, oh, this guy like thinks he's you know. And I mean, I I think Chase did a, an amazing job as Secretary of Treasury, but I think he had this also this kind of like oh, I'm not getting recognized enough. And but yeah, Lincoln, just like you said, Jeremy played him like a fiddle, like he knew what he was doing. And Chase offers his resignation. I think it's at the end of June of 1864, and Lincoln for the first time ever says, "Okay." You can resign. <laughs> Called the bluff. Yeah, because I think every single time it was just like Chase is like seeing what he'll do, and every single time it's like Lincoln. No, Lincoln's like, no, 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 I need you. You know, you can you can stay. And then this, you know, the, the final straw was like, no, nah, yeah, you know what? I'll accept it. It's that's we're done. Yeah, and I, I think that yeah, was. Yeah, I wish. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it would have been awesome to see his face once he got the news. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and, and then, I'm... you know, all's well that ends well when uh, he did appoint him. Uh, interesting fact about uh, Salmon Chase, uh, from 1928 to 1946, there was a $10,000 bill, and he was on it, which is, seems to seems to really, like, because I think adjusted for inflation, that's like the equivalent of like $100,000. I don't know why you needed a yeah. currency for something that large, but apparently they did. So, yeah, Chase was on the 10000 Could you buy a piece of gum with that, Bill? Yeah. Yeah, that's probably one that I would want to counterfeit. Like, oh, man, could you get change for a 10000 <laughs> All I All I got is a Chase. <laughs> and then you're like, no, and you're like, Jesus, what kind of place is this? <laughs> you're at the this, local corner store trying this to. This says for it. all debts, public and private. Yeah, so. Uh, interestingly, so, I think that this also kind of mirrors the rest of history. None of these folks could, you know, wanted anything to do with the vice presidency uh, because it's a fairly meaningless uh, post. So I think as far as the way that the history plays out, uh, as we know, because of what happens in April 1865, it's a hugely important decision, but there wasn't a significant battle from the from the heavyweights in the Republican Party for the vice presidential nomination, which I think is interesting, just looking back at the scope of history um, and, and what Andrew Johnson ended up being and not being. Um, it, you know, w- what would have been different if, if it was in the days where Seward... Um, or, or even Hannibal Hamlin, if he had stayed on as, as vice president, um, what difference um, differences we could have could have maybe seen? So the other person that sort of made waves in this election was John Fremont, who ran on what, um, in my research, I found is called the third party ticket. Um, he was not exactly on good terms with Lincoln. Uh, at the beginning of the Civil War, he's commanding the Department of the West, and ha- he holds the rank of Major General, and he's headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, which is very bitterly divided. And the Confederates at one point end up seizing control of the southwestern region of the state. So on August 30th, 1861, Fremont issues a decree um, freeing the slaves of Missouri and also establishing martial law. He does this without seeking Lincoln's permission or even telling him about it. 
Uh, Lincoln rescinds the order for fear it could push the border states into the Confederacy. Um, and Fremont, another, some more stuff goes down, and he ends up being relieved of his command on November 2nd, 1861. So I don't think there's exactly a great relationship there between those two. So May 31st, there's 400 radical Republicans that gather um, at Cleveland's Chapin Hall to nominate an alternative candidate to Lincoln. Speeches for the suppressing the South and confiscating territory under federal control, and Fremont edited. And they adopted the name the Radical Democracy. So they were going to run on the platform of continuation of the war without compromise, constitutional amendment banning slavery, federal protection of equal rights, rights of free speech, free press, and writ of habeas corpus, which is directed at the Lincoln administration, um, which we, we did an episode about that. Um, and there was a few other things that um, they had in their platform too. So when Lincoln found out about Fremont running for his third party, he turned to his Bible and he read aloud from uh, 1 Samuel verse 22 2. And everyone that was discontented gathered themselves onto him and he became a captain over them and there were with him about 400 men. So he knew the exact verse to turn to, which I find quite fascinating. Um, so as it turns out, this third party ticket was a complete failure and never really did get off the ground. So the, th the question I had for you two was, do you felt threatened by Fremont um, with this happening? I don't think so. Um, mm. I think that... Uh had it been immediately after, you know, cause Fremont, um, with his history of being the, the first nominee from the party, I mean, I think he had a little bit of credibility with, with, with the early Republicans, but he had very much exhausted that credibility with his ineptitude out West. Um, cause I think it was more than him just, just pissing Lincoln off. I think he also didn't do a very good job and was not very well liked. Um, certainly not a humanitarian at all in the way that he ran the, the anti-war effort um, out West. So I think he had, um, his career had run its course. Uh, we talked about Van Buren and Fillmore making efforts at the presidency after they had been, after their, you know, their careers were essentially over. I think this, you know, is very much like this, except without the, the credibility of it being, having been, president i think what what movements like this and his movement particularly was really hopeful for was if there was a major setback in the war or if lincoln made um made an error that would have opened up a window for a group like this um that didn't happen the opposite happened lincoln actually got stronger as the election approached uh, i think when these movements were, were just budding and just starting um it was very much possible where you could think like okay if if we have a catastrophe in the war, if the war starts turning the other way, or if Lincoln continues to lose favor among people, maybe even loses favor among the enlisted and, you know, those serving for the Union, there's going to be a void. And somebody's going to have to fill that void um, because the, the Democrats were very strong where they were strong, but they were not very strong nationwide. So, um, you know, places like Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, they had some footholds, but... Um, not na not nationally. So I think that they were trying to capitalize on an opportunity that never arose. Um, and if it had arisen, I don't think he would have been the person to do it anyway. 
but that's that's largely what that whole uh, episode strikes me as. And Freeman was kind of a he was a has been, I think, at that point anyway. Yeah, I don't think Lico was trying. I mean, you had none of the real major players uh, back in then. I kind of view it as like it's a faculty meeting, and I'm like, screw you, you know, to the administrators. I'm like, I believe in who's coming with me. And then I get to the parking lot, and I turn around, there's like five others. And I was like, shit. Well, I got to stick with this now. I think that's what uh, this reminds me of. So the Pathfinder, you know, was blazing this path that only like five others wanted to follow with them. So it was kind of embarrassing. And I definitely think he's a has-been at this time, too. So, um, yeah, another guy that got treated by Lincoln, too. Got his ass fired. <laughs> and his ass stomped, too. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty what, much what I thought, too, is I think Lincoln just looked at it and thought, you know what, I've got bigger fish to fry right now. This guy's only got 400 people with him. And it's... It, he wouldn't let it be an issue. And it, I mean, yeah, as you guys both said, and I agree, Fremont was a husband by that point. I, I think that's. And I feel like those. Go ahead, Jeremy. I, I think that that's a key part to, um, to just kind of who Fremont at this point. Um, uh, I think that, that Lincoln kind of ignoring it was was another example of how astute he was politically because sometimes when there's like grassroots movements like that that aren't getting any traction getting attention from the people who they're opposing oftentimes serves them like like for him not to waste his time talking about it kind of delegitimized delegitimized it right away and now had he made a major issue of it um that could have been something i think we're seeing this quite often when um, the current president goes on Twitter and starts talking about somebody like it brings it to national attention. Like you have detractors who didn't have a platform necessarily who may say something about the president that kind of goes in one year out the other, very, you know, whatever these, you know, people talk, but he validates it by saying things that might be offensive on Twitter. And now all of a sudden this person's on talk shows, this person's on CNN and the Sunday shows you know, and it's like, okay, now we're going to talk about this person, you know. Um, even, like, major important people. Maxine Waters is a good example, who's who's amazing and, and just such an amazing person. But her, I think her descent of the current president is amplified hugely because he keeps calling her stupid. And, and, and then people rally behind her and say, like, this is a black woman who's brilliant and been in Congress forever and is so eloquent and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Like that message now people are hearing they didn't need to hear it like it's obvious to, to most people who know what they're talking about but when he goes on and repeatedly calls her stupid and then all of a sudden you hear from so many people about how he's wrong like you just amplified her persona and her message um, I think that that's what Lincoln realized like if I'm going to talk if I'm going to spend any time replying to all of this stuff it legitimizes 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 their whole movement. So he ignores it and it just kind of faded away. Um, I thought that was, I think that's political brilliance right there. Yep. I completely agree. So then that brings us to the nomination. And at this point, the Republican party, Lincoln is going to run it as the national union party. Uh, the convention's held on June 7th, 1864. Um, now, just a few days prior to this, unfortunately, there has been the Battle of Cold Harbor, and there were many casualties on both sides. 
Um, and before that, um, I believe there was the wilderness as well, which also heavy casualties. And by this point, I think Grant is being called Grant the Butcher. Um, so that kind of in some ways playing against Lincoln right now. Um, and White says that the distressing news from Cold Harbor blighted what should have been anticipation of Lincoln's nomination by now a foregone conclusion for a second turn. So I think there was a, a little bit, it wasn't as much of fanfare as what it, it could have been, I think. Um, and rightly so, there's been horrible stuff happen at Cold Harbor. Um, Lincoln, um, as was tradition, was not at the convention. Uh, the nominees did not attend at that time. John Nicolay, his secretary, or one of his secretaries, was there on his behalf. And one of their, their platforms was resolved that slavery was the cause and now constitutes the strength of this rebellion. We demand its utter and complete exportation from the soil of the Republic. So it's acknowledgement of the cause of the Civil War. And the other platform, obviously, is an amendment of the Constitution as will positively prohibit African slavery in the United States. And they also had another one, which was aimed at Montgomery Blair. Um, purge of any cabinet member who did not cordially endorse the principles proclaimed in these resolutions. And Blair will soon after resign as a cabinet member from, uh, from Lincoln's administration. Yeah, yeah that Blair Go ahead. stuff, became, there became a lot of backdoor politicking um, with all that. You know, he had to kind of get everybody together. Um, because there was actually talk of about holding a second convention to the mm -hmm. point where they were establishing dates and stuff as things were going on and things weren't getting better with the war. Um, especially through the summer months there. Um, so then Blair was a big holding block. And he actually reached out to um, some of the newspapers were a big. Um, so Lincoln did a lot of backdoor politicking with others to get that Republican ticket unified, which is something the Democrats can never do, um, which became one of their biggest downfalls in all this. You go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, and I think the it's important to note the platform that they agreed upon at that convention as well. Um, it's, uh, well, one, um, obviously pursuing the war until, you know, continuing fighting Confederacy until there's a unconditional surrender. Uh, but they actually included in the party platform, a constitutional amendment abolishing slavery. So, um, this is very, very clear that, uh, Lincoln and, and the Republicans, um, are going to pursue that constitutional amendment. Um, another that I find very fascinating is that they put in the party platform that they wanted um, to provide aid to disabled vets, um, which is a theme that Lincoln obviously very much believes in and mentions very um, eloquently in the second inaugural. Um, then, uh, interesting, the Republican Party, mind you, of 1864 put in there as a party platform an encouragement of immigration uh, which was nice. It's nice to hear that from the Republican Party. Um, and then also construction of a transcontinental railroad was actually in that party's platform, um, which is, of course, a um, strikingly liberal concept to spend government dollars on um, providing an infrastructure that will support business in, in that way. So, um, But that was, that's what uh, another major issue at conventions is deciding what the platform is going to be. And as the Republican Party is, is newly forming, um, this is what their platform is. I do want to point out, because I'm sure that many of you are probably thinking this, um, Lincoln was not 
officially a Republican in 1864. Uh, they called it the National Union Party, um, and it was just kind of understood that that, that was the Republicans. Uh, they still went by Republican in, na- in name, but on the ballots they showed up as the National Union Party. So officially, um, based on uh, the official balloting and party declaration, Abraham Lincoln ran under the National Union Party for his re-election, not the Republican Party, um, which is an interesting little tidbit. Um, I think that that's only that's all it is is a tidbit because for all intents and purposes and every other way, it was the Republican Party. So Lincoln, obviously, he won the nomination uh, at the convention. And, but he needed a running mate, and his running mate ends up being Andrew Johnson, who is military governor of Tennessee at the time. Uh, Johnson was born in North Carolina, but moved to Tennessee. And it was actually Dan Sickles of Peach Orchard Gettysburg fame that went to Tennessee to determine if Johnson would be a good running mate for him. Well, also murdering, um, fame. just insane. Yes, murdering fame too, yes. <laughs> Of temporary acquittal, insanity acquittal, fame. Acquittal, but you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah temporary insanity fame. That's right. Um, so they picked Johnson because it was thought it would kind of, would help promote like just the unity of the United States. And that secession was, it was a lost cause by this point. Um, the Richmond Examiner stated that the National Union Party had nominated the Illinois rail splitter and the Tennessee Taylor. And which I thought was a great <laughs> headline to have. For sure. I, was I, lo- I love that it says rail splitter. I was going to, before uh, Jeremy approached me, I was going to do the, the, uh, the shit. I totally butchered this. The, the joke. Tennessee Taylor podcast. What the hell is Johnson's nickname? <laughs> Tennessee Taylor. Tennessee Taylor. Yeah, never mind. Yeah. I was going to do a Tennessee Taylor podcast. Wow. We're going to have to edit that out. <laughs> nope. Staying in. <laughs> So, <laughs> shit. We call that pulling a Fillmore. There you go, pulling a Fillmore. That'll be our next you podcast have, title. You guys have anything to add about Andrew Johnson? Uh, no, actually, well, we should probably do a show on him at some point. Um, I, I think that the decision was largely made, and this is so fascinating to me because he obviously becomes president. Uh, but the decision was made largely because he was from the South and loyal to the Union um, and really nothing else. There wasn't a whole lot other than uh, that. So it was a purely political move and not necessarily the brightest, I think, on Lincoln's behalf. I think the intent was great, I think, to say, uh, to really start, try to start the healing process by saying, we, you know, this is this is an example of how much we feel that you are still a part of this nation we will, you know, we want one of your own as the vice president. Um, you know, I don't think he was by any means uh, a politician of the caliber of Seward or Chase or Bates or even Stanton or um, Sumner. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Um, and I think that that was ended up, you know, being a very costly mistake as far as the, you know, the general um, conduct of. The country, although I do think that Johnson is underrated, 
um, and often kind of the scapegoat for a lot of the mess that was the Reconstruction that was largely due, I think, more to party politics necessarily than um, than his leadership. Um, and I think his impeachment was also largely because of party politics, meaning, you know, he upset folks who thought that they were all in the same political party when he said, I'm the president and I'm going to do what I think is right. Um, so he definitely stood up for his convictions. I mean, it could not have been easy to be um, a politician from Tennessee and to stay loyal to the union. Um, I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. And I do think that, you know, Lincoln, it was a great gesture for him to to appoint him to the vice presidency. Um, I, I just think that it was a little, um, I don't know, uh, it just didn't work out as, as well as it could have been. You know, it, had he been a, a little bit more of a, um, a little bit better of a politician and leader, perhaps Reconstruction would have gone a little bit better. Um, but um, at the same time, um, I think most of the other potential vice presidential candidates were political insiders that may not have looked as, as strong for Lincoln to, to nominate. Um, there's, you know, you know, you could have stuck with Hannibal Hamlin. That probably would have been a pretty safe choice. There's no reason that Hannibal Hamlin was not, you know, it's not like he did something to, to, to warrant essentially being fired. Um, there's a couple, you know, a Senator from New York, Daniel Dickinson was up. Um, a handful of generals were in the conversation. Grant was probably in the conversation, um, but he ended up going with um, Andrew Johnson, who was a former senator from Tennessee, because of his loyalty to the Union, which I do think was a good gesture, especially since uh, it was a sign that the war was winding down. And I think that it was also a very good indication that Lincoln's eyes were toward uh, Reconstruction, the end of the war, more than they were on conducting the war itself. Had he chosen a general, I think that would have been more of an indicator of this is a wartime election, this is a wartime decision. Him choosing Andrew Johnson was, I think, a way of saying this is a post-war decision. What are we going to do after after all of this? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think you know something else, too, that probably factors in is the office of vice president at that time wasn't as big of a role as what it is now. And... I think it was more for, as you said, like just, you know, just to show this national unity that the war is winding down and not so much. It's like, oh, if anything happens to Lincoln, is this guy going to be a good president? I don't know how much of that kind of thinking played into it as it would today. I think they thought, who can we get? that will give a great drunken speech on Inauguration Day. And they're like, oh, this guy will do it. And they were right. I, I, <laughs> yep. You could do a uh, like a best man speech drunk. If you're giving a speech on Inauguration Day, I would say drink the alcohol after the speech. That's my advice out there. Yeah. Take it from the Tennessee Taylor himself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and he's also uh, Tommy Lee Jones's doppelganger. Looks oh, like yeah, yeah. yeah, I can see that. <laughs> there's another episode like idea: Paul. Civil War doppelgangers. Oh, you get us some fun with that. I'm sure there's probably some lists yeah. out there online that that are yeah, Michael Fassbender out. for Sherman. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah, we could go all day on that. And then there's yeah. some like <laughs> Benjamin Butler. No one. No one looks like that guy. That's probably a good thing. Um, yeah, dude, that guy was 
<laughs> oh, who who could play George McClellan? Ooh, great question. A turtle? Yes. A sloth. Yeah, there you go. That'd be better. Sloth, that, that's nice. insulting the sloth. Oh, nice. Double burn. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that pretty much takes us up to the nomination. We've got quite a lot more to talk about, but we're getting up to uh, the end of our show for this week. So we'll, we're going to make this a two-part episode. Uh, so next week we'll come back at you with part two of our 1864 election coverage, where we will talk about George McClellan's rise to the Democratic nomination, the Democratic Party platform, and then the general election um, you know, obviously we're, we apologize for the spoilers that we've given all show, but Lincoln's going to win this re-election just, uh, in case you didn't know that. Uh, but we will talk about the general election. My research. Yeah. We, we've mentioned the second inaugural. So if you weren't able to draw the line between the, oh. the fact that there was a second inaugural oh. to the re-election, you know, we may have issues, but you know what? It doesn't matter how much you know about Lincoln. You're welcome in Rail Splitter Nation. This is not a competition to see who the smartest Lincoln scholar is. It's all about learning about Lincoln. So if you didn't know that, he was a two-termer, even though he didn't get to serve much of that second term. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into our weekly features, which is our first one is of the people by the people, in which we talk about social media posts that we liked for the week. I will turn it over to either Mary or Nick, who wants to go first with our Of the People, By the People for this week. Uh, I'll go. I got one that kind of fits in with elections, I guess. Um, Lincoln by Lincoln Belongs to the Ages. Tweeted out a Lincoln quote. I thought it was good. I liked it the other day, two days ago, or uh, I don't know. It would have been Monday this week. And the quote is, Our government rests in public opinion. Whoever could change public opinion could change the government. Uh, practically just so much. Um, Lincoln's speech in Chicago, 1856. Saw that, like it. Um, good follow on Twitter. So, bam, there it is. Nice. So, mine uh, comes from, he's on Twitter. He is, he's a Lincoln nerd like we are. Ryan T. Beach, he's known as that Lincoln guy. And he posted a photo on Twitter of a t-shirt that he got from one of his friends. And it is for the 39th annual Popeye 5K. And it shows Popeye shaking Abraham Lincoln's hand. And that just, when I saw that posted the other day, I was like, that is one awesome shirt. Wow, that's awesome. Um, I Mine's not quite as profound, but I did just want to put it on here because I appreciated it. Um, the, in, in the Facebook group, I got to pull it up here, uh, in the Facebook group, um, we had a post about, uh, the, um, from Eric Lee, who posted that, uh, he just subscribes to a daily email called BookBub, which I knew nothing about, but that's like right up my alley is to find, uh, cheap books. It's this site, by the way, we don't have any sponsors. We're completely zero budget podcast. We're not zero budget. We're a completely negative budget podcast. Um, but anyway, this looks like a pretty cool thing. So I signed up for it right away uh, to get emails about deals from books. But uh, I thought it was really cool that he thought of Mary when he saw that Fierce Patriot was uh, on sale for two bucks the other day. And he immediately bought it. So, uh, Eric, we hope you enjoy that book that was recommended so highly by Rail Splitter Mary, Civil War fangirl herself. Um, but also, thanks for turning me on to something that uh, might save me eight or ten bucks here and there. Um, because, um, I always have these conflicting feelings of like, man, I really want to 
you know, I should buy books so that people who write them and publish them continue to stay in business. And then I'm like, ooh, they're selling this at a loss? Sign me up. Um, but anyway, I think the books are meant to be read. So I'm all for the cheap stuff. So I appreciate the the, the tip and uh, that you were thinking of us when you were book shopping. Uh, our This Week in Lincoln this week, um, we're going to continue on with our series because I had so many for my last visit to Springfield that I will continue just to keep... Uh, throwing those your way. Uh, so the one we'll go with uh, this week um, is, well, there's, let's go with this one. This, I don't even know if I sent this to, to the my fellow, fellow rail splitters, but it, at the actual Lincoln Museum, uh, they had a product of um, like artisanal or homemade or I don't know, like locally made lip gloss or lip, lip ointment or something um that was made in kentucky i believe or you know down in lincoln country and the advertisement or the sticker on it is a bumblebee abraham lincoln beard top hat you know bumblebee abraham lincoln probably oh, that's yeah you know, the lighting's pretty terrible um but anyway i'll post it oh i see it yeah, yeah that's cool yeah so little bumblebee abraham lincoln lip balm um so made by the descendants of the bees that may have pestered Abraham Lincoln in the 1820s. I don't know. Um, so turn in next week where we will talk about the general election and the Democratic nomination of George McClellan for the presidency in 1864. Uh, any parting thoughts, Mary or Nick? Well, that was, it was really interesting researching it and very cool topic. Good job to show notes, Mary. Yeah, thank so you. thank you everyone for listening. Uh, hopefully we don't leave you in too much suspense heading into the election um, as we're kind of gearing up for the midterm elections ourselves uh, and, and who we're going to vote for and all that kind of stuff. So we're looking forward to talk more politics and talk election next week. But until then, please continue to walk the world with malice toward none and with charity for all. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>